walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 45. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. In the last episode with Beth and Steve, I mentioned in passing the common phenomenon of the two to three page overview of the Santiago pilgrimage's history that pops up in every pilgrim memoir and guidebook. I should know, I've written one of them. We know the beats at this point if we've read through a few of these. The stories of Iberian evangelization, James's martyrdom, the stone boat, the shell-covered rider, the hermit and the flashing lights, the Battle of Clavijo, the Codex Calixtinus, and the pilgrimage boom. The sustained decline that followed the boom, though, is always more skeletal. One little detail that I've often encountered but never explored is a reference to Santiago falling a bit out of fashion in 17th century Spain, to the point where he risked losing his singular preeminence as Spain's patron saint. The threat came from Avila, where Teresa Sanchez de Cepeda y Humara, or Teresa of Avila, was getting fast-tracked to sainthood and enjoyed a broad base of support. The Reconquista was over, the initial silver and gold boom from the New World was giving way to some economic and political problems. Perhaps, some leaders asserted, it was time for a new patron to support Spain through these new threats. It's a fascinating story, one that I recently had fleshed out when reading Dr. Erin Rose's Saint and Nation, and thus I'm very pleased to have her with me in this episode to share it with all of you. That's the main focus though we'll make a couple of other detours before it's done. Hope you enjoy. Dr. Aaron Rowe is an associate professor in the Department of History at Johns Hopkins University and also the director of undergraduate studies. Her research centers on religious culture of the early modern Iberian world. Among other works, she is the author of Saint and Nation, Santiago, Teresa of Avila, and Plural Identities in Early Modern Spain. Thanks for speaking with me, Erin. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Let's start broad. What is a patron saint, and what purpose does it serve? Well, patron saints exist on a couple of different levels. So you can have a personal patron, a local patron, or a national patron. But a patron is basically a saint. In the Catholic tradition, it is a saint with whom you have a particularly close connection. So people who have a personal patron saint, it is merely a saint that they have a special devotion to, like mm -hmm. they pray to, they feel close to, who's kind of watching out for them in a special way. Mm -hmm. And so in the Middle Ages, in the early modern period, communities started developing their own patrons. So each town or region would have their own patron or patrons. They usually had more than one. And they were because um, devotion was communal. So everyone in the town would get together on these important feast days to celebrate the patron saint. They would usually take an image out and process with it around the town. And the idea was that the communal faith toward the saint would convince the saint to advocate with God on the community's behalf. So hmm. particularly, let's say you have a flood or a plague of locusts, which was a real thing that could happen in early modern <laughs> Spain, you would ask your patron saint for help. And you might make a vow to the saint, oh, if you intercede with God for us on behalf of this problem, then we will always celebrate your feast day very lavishly. They were basically people who advocated for you to God. So it sounds like a very transactional relationship. Yes, in practice, absolutely. I think the theology of sainthood, you know, encourages us to think about that relationship on a more profound spiritual level. Mm -hmm. But the saints have always existed, partially as role models, mm -hmm. but also always as advocates. Gotcha. I've long heard of Santiago, St. James, being the patron saint of Spain. When did that come about? Well, there's a lot of debate 
about this issue because St. James is one of the apostles. Mm-hmm. And so the legend goes that he came to Spain and evangelized the Spanish people after Christ's death and resurrection. Then he returned to the Near East and was martyred, and then they brought his body miraculously back to Spain. So there's one narrative that says, oh, he was our patron saint from the very beginning because he preached here. But the reality of the recognition of Santiago as a patron saint by people who lived in Spain, it didn't really start until the 13th century Hmm. and intensifies after that. You've gone through the historical record of claims that Santiago came through the Iberian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. Is there any legitimacy to that? Or how do historians like yourself view that? It is always a tricky thing, especially as I'm a Catholic myself. Mm -hmm. So I always hesitate to say such and such thing did not happen. But (laughs) I would say that historians generally agree that that is very, very unlikely that he traveled to the Iberian Peninsula. There's no evidence for it. And given what we know about what was going on in the Near East in the first century, it just seems really unlikely that the apostles acting as missionaries traveled that far. And what was it in the 13th century that triggered his gaining an official stature within Spain? Well, particularly the 11th to the 13th centuries, the various rulers of the different kingdoms in Spain. Iberia has a really complicated history, and we talk about it as Spain, but it's actually a whole constellation of different kingdoms. And those kingdoms were changing over time in the Middle Ages. Medieval Spanish history can get really complicated really quickly. And part of the reason for that is that starting at the 8th century, the Iberian Peninsula was conquered by Arab and Berber Muslims coming across the Strait of Gibraltar from North Africa. Mm-hmm. And they conquered almost all of that territory, except for a little bit along the north coast of the peninsula. And of course, that was not just a kind of a stable Islamic kingdom during the whole Middle Ages, but also went through its own changes. But there was a lot of instability, political and military instability. And what we see happening particularly from the 11th to 13th century, is the various Christian rulers start taking more and more territory from the various Islamic kingdoms and polities and pushing it southward. Mm -hmm. And so you have, this is a period of time where there's a lot of warfare and where that warfare is being framed as Christian versus Muslim. Also a time period when Europeans, particularly the French, were starting to, the end of the 11th century, engage in a series of what were called crusades, an effort to take the city of Jerusalem back also from Islamic leaders. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of kind of new language about warfare between Christians and Muslims, and they started talking about it as a form of holy warfare. And when that language that if it gets developed in France and these other parts of Europe, historians have argued it gets brought back to Spain, and that starts being a way that Spanish Christian writers start talking about this warfare that's happening there. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, there start being stories of miraculous interventions of Santiago to protect Christian forces or advance Christian forces against Islamic ones. And so in these stories, Santiago appears as a knight on a horse with a sword. That's one of the other things that scholars have argued came out of the Crusades, that the idea of a military saint sort of Hmm. existed in medieval Europe, but was really a Christian Near Eastern phenomenon. Mm -hmm. There was a lot less of that in Europe. And the Crusaders kind of saw these military cult to saints and brought them back to Europe with them. So we have Santiago suddenly is at night on a horse who's trampling Islamic foes and helping the Christians come to victory. And so because he gets associated with the military victories, he starts getting associated with the kingdom itself. Okay, so that's James. And then we have this other saint who comes into the picture. And, you know, it's funny, I think when a lot of Americans, this was certainly true for me earlier on, when think of St. Teresa, I thought of Mother Teresa. 
So we're talking about a different Teresa here, Teresa of Avila. Who was she? So Teresa of Avila was a 16th century nun from the city of Avila, which is in Castile, Spain. Not that far from Madrid. It's a couple hour train ride, maybe, to the west, a little bit of northwest of Madrid. So she was from a fairly affluent family. And at a relatively young age, she decided to become a nun. And she joined an order, a religious order called the Carmelites which was named after a devotion of, to the Virgin Mary as Our Lady of Mount Carmel. So she becomes a Carmelite, and once she's in the monastery, she becomes very unhappy and unfulfilled by her religious vocation. And one of the things that she, that she finds frustrating is that the other nuns, she thinks, are living too lavish a lifestyle. So she decides to do what we call reforming the Carmelite order. So she says, the Carmelite order has fallen away from its earliest intentions, and we need to go back to the way it was supposed to be in the beginning. So she basically starts a new order, which are called the Discalced Carmelite. (laughs) Discalced comes from a word meaning without shoes or barefoot, and it's a way of signaling that this is more austere form of living. And so she becomes really famous in Spain during her lifetime. She travels around and founds discalced Carmelite monasteries for women throughout the Kingdom of Castile. And the king at the time is King Philip II. He really likes Teresa. And in addition to these founding of monasteries, she's also a mystic. And that means she has visions, particularly of Christ and the saints and God. And she was also a writer. And she produced a number of works, although they were not printed until after she died. But she was an incredibly famous and successful and charismatic figure in the 16th century and died in 1582 and then was canonized by the Catholic Church in 1622, which in the early modern period was actually pretty fast. Hmm. So she became a really important early modern saint. She's still a really important saint. People are still reading her spiritual autobiography and taking a lot of inspiration from it, both inside Spain and throughout the Spanish world. And in fact, in the 1970s, she was named by the Pope as one of the doctors of the Church. And there are very few female doctors of the Church. But even during her lifetime, they referred to her that way, as a doctor, meaning somebody who is particularly endowed with the gift of theological understanding. Hmm. So we have Santiago raised to a patron sainthood in the 13th century. Then Teresa comes along in the in the 16th century. And in the early 17th century, she is officially recognized as, as a saint. When does she emerge as a rival to James for preeminence in Spain when it comes to that status as a, a patron saint? She actually rises to preeminence before she's canonized, which is one of the complicated things that happens. But she is beatified, I think it's in 1618, and it's around that time. So beatification is the first step, Mm -hmm. and they didn't really start doing formal beatifications until the end of the 16th and beginning of the 17th centuries. There were all these reforms in the Catholic Church at the end of the 16th century about how they were going to recognize individuals as saints. So the process got more complicated and multi-step. And you're gearing up toward beatifying someone. It takes a lot of effort. You have to have a lot of supporters. You have to have a lot of money. You want to promote that person, both in your region or kingdom and in Rome. So there was a lot of energy around her cult and There were a lot of really influential people who thought she was fantastic. And so they started a movement, basically, to have her recognized as the patron saint. I think there was a sense of excitement over her sanctity and the idea that she was somebody that existed within their living memory. She had a kind of immediacy. On the surface, it seems like she has a great argument. I mean, she's... Spanish through and through to the extent that, you know, quote, Spanish exists at the time, certainly Castilian. She lived her whole life there. She clearly has this impressive record of making an impact 
in her immediate domain and then more broadly. So there's all of this stuff that there's no historical question when it comes to her in the same way that there is about James. So when the discussion emerges about having co-patron saints, not even necessarily getting rid of James, but bringing Teresa up alongside of James as as co-patrons of Spain, it seems to me like that would just be an obvious win-win for everyone involved. And yet... And yet there was a great deal of conflict. Why did it prove to be so controversial? Well, you make a a really excellent point, particularly if we think about the fact that it was not unusual for kingdoms to have more than one patron saint. And certainly cities, towns, regions had multiple patron saints. And the the bigger ones, you know, you could have three, four, five, (laughs) because, you know, you live in the early modern period, you have a lot of problems. You might want... (laughs) A whole bunch of different people to appeal to. (laughs) So it is really interesting that the idea of them being co-patrons was so controversial. I don't think anybody at any point suggested that she should be the sole patron. Mm -hmm. So the backlash against it, it was, I think, unexpected to some of her supporters. But I think one of the things that made this project so fascinating to me was how multi-layered it is, which is to say, there isn't one answer to your question, because there were so many different agenda involved. But I think one of the most important is the cathedral at Santiago de Compostela, which purportedly houses the relics of St. James the Apostle, was a really powerful archbishop. And he was worried that if she was named co-patron, then there would be a kind of diminishment in the prestige of their saint. And they were fighting for him and for his reputation. And I think it's possible that they might not have been so intense about it if St. James's cult had not come under scrutiny during that same period. So there were a lot of people at the end of the 16th and the beginning of the 17th century who were saying, you know, all these stories about Santiago sound a little far-fetched. What's the evidence for them? Because in the 16th and 17th century, people, historians at the time, started doing a lot more archival work and archaeology, those kinds of things that we today recognize as kind of modern history. And so the standards of evidence were a lot higher than they had been. And so people were starting to make noises about Santiago. And I think there was a sense of we can't give an inch on any of this because if we do, the whole thing is going to fall apart. It's a slippery slope. Yes. Yes. And it always needs to be tacked on when we think about what was at stake for the archbishop. It's about prestige and prestige is connected to power, but it's also connected to economic gain, to to finance, Mm -hmm. right? Their status as holding the relics of this apostle made them European famous. The pilgrimage to Compostela was the third most popular pilgrimage in all of Western Europe. So Jerusalem was number one, Rome was number two, and Compostela was number three. And that's particularly incredible if you think about how relatively isolated Compostela is from the rest of Europe, the amount of infrastructure and effort it took to get there. And so that was how famous it was. And when something is that famous, the archbishop and the cathedral, they're making a lot of money. And so we can't ever distangle the economic side of it from the political and spiritual. (laughs) It was moneyed lobbying interests that were potentially getting in the way of good policy. (laughs) Yes, 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 (laughs) always. So you write about gender as well, and obviously Mm -hmm. James is a man and Teresa was a woman. Did that play a part in this? You know, I don't know truly whether or not the fact that she was a woman made her more appealing to some people or made her less appealing to some people. Certainly, there was a great deal of negative or misogynist attitudes and beliefs about women during the period. But I really think what we see in terms of gender is the way they talked about both of the saints. I don't know if that distinction makes sense. It's hard for me to know if they thought that she would be a bad patron saint because she was a woman, or they thought she would be a bad patron saint because they didn't want another patron saint, and they decided to attack her through her gender. Mm. 
maybe that distinction doesn't matter, but so they start using a lot of, I only mention that distinction because the main way I see it manifest in the sources is in their rhetoric. So the way they talk about Santiago and Teresa, they use a lot of what we call gendered language. So hyper-masculine language related to him. He's strong. He's fierce. He will defend us. He's powerful. Whereas, you know, you could use either positive or negative ways of talking about femininity, either she's weak and irrational, or she, that God might listen to her more because she's a woman in the same way that he listens the most to his mother, the Virgin Mary. So there's a lot of different ways that people could use gender, particularly as a way of attacking Teresa. I was struck as well by the fact that you you describe how in Spain, in similar to what's happening in, in many parts of Europe in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, you have this national identity building project, this idea of what it means to be Spanish. And this patron saint debate is happening in the early stages of that identity construction. What was the relationship between those two things, the patron saint debate and the nation building, the identity building process? And what did each saint offer potentially to that developing identity? That's a great question. As I mentioned earlier, the idea of Spain was more aspirational than real. And I mean that not as an idea, but as a legal entity, because at the time, so what we call Spain during the early modern period was really two separate kingdoms, the kingdom of Castile and the kingdom of Aragon. And then there were other kingdoms that were part of what we call the Spanish monarchy, like Sicily and Naples, and they had territory in the, in the low countries and Burgundy. So it was quite a big territory, but they recognized legally and politically that they were separate. So Aragon, for example, had its own laws. It had its own currency. It had its own languages. So it was completely separate hmm. from the Kingdom of Castile. And yet they often talked about them together as Spain, because the word Spain comes from the Latin word for the Roman province, Hispania. And so when the Iberian Peninsula was part of the Roman Empire that today is Spain was called Hispania. And so they often use that term as kind of a loose geographic marker. But it was more like the people in Castile used the word Spain than the people in Aragon who were much more anxious about Castilian encroachment on their own sovereignty. Hmm. And you can see, of course, echoes of that tension in contemporary debates, because one of the most powerful parts of the Kingdom of Aragon was Barcelona and hmm. Catalonia. So those kinds of historical debates are quite old. So when the patron saint issue comes up, it's really interesting because both Santiago and, well, Santiago had always, we call him this patron saint of Spain, and I think technically today he is designated that way. During this period, he's really the patron saint of Castile. Hmm. So he's not necessarily a figure that is important to people living in Aragon, for example. They have their own military patron in Barcelona, who is St. George, who is their really important patron, who is also the patron saint of England. Mm -hmm. So the idea of what is Spain at all is really complicated in the 17th century. It didn't exist as a legal entity. The idea of, okay, we're trying to create a or it evolves into something like a nation state or a national identity, that doesn't really start happening in any kind of deep way in Spain until the 18th century. Hmm. So in this period, they often referred to Castile and Aragon together as, it sounds really awkward in English, but it, it works better in Spanish. They refer to them as the Spains, plural, hmm. as a way of acknowledging the fact that the Kingdom of Aragon was still part of this ancient of heritage of Hispania. But really, when they talk about Spain and Castile, they sometimes use the terms interchangeably. And so one, that was one of the things that made me really interested in this project was, are they trying to name a patron saint of Castile or the patron saint of Spain? And if they're using the word España or Spain, and if they're using the word for nation, 
why are they using those words and what do those mean? Mm -hmm. And that was a really complicated question to try to get to the bottom (laughs) of because they're not really making a political claim of oversight over Aragon. It wasn't like Castile was trying to make a play for, okay, now we are the center of everything, except they kind of did think of themselves as the center of everything, especially because the capital of the Habsburg monarchy was settled at the end of the 16th century in Madrid, which was in Castile. So they had this sense of themselves, I think, as Spain. And so when they think about who's the patron saint of Spain, they are thinking about themselves, the kingdom of Castile. Aragon, they didn't care about the debate at all because they didn't see it as relevant to them. But what the king, so that the king and the court get involved in this debate, and they're very supportive of Teresa's co-patronage, and they really see that the, quote, patron saint of Spain is a way of presenting a specific image of the king of Spain. And the Habsburg monarchy. And so the symbolic power of being a patron saint, so there's the symbolic power, and of course there's also the spiritual power, which the king absolutely also believed in. So you have the spiritual power, but also you have the power of image. Mm -hmm. And image was extremely important in early modern European political culture. Right? You always had to have the fanciest house, the most magnificent court, the most lavish decorations. You wanted to attract artists and writers, and you wanted people who visited your court to see how powerful and wealthy you are. You know, sometimes we can, modern day people can be dismissive of the idea of image, but image was everything. And so the idea of a patron saint as being the way the Spanish would represent themselves to themselves and to the rest of Europe was extremely important to them. What made Santiago more appealing in that regard? I think because he had been the traditional patron and tradition was something that was really important to people. It's been like this for a long time. We have always had this close association with him. He protected us a long time ago during this period of upheaval, which you know, these quote-unquote great victories, you know, when they would talk about Islamic forces, you know, they were always using this heavily charged language about fighting the enemies of God or the enemies of Christ, right? So Mm -hmm. they had this strong idea of themselves as being defenders of the faith. And so Santiago was really strongly connected with that image. And we can see that in another way, because what in you look at Latin America, colonial Latin America, as soon as the Spanish start arriving, colonizing, they start erecting images of St. James and naming places Santiago, right? Mm-hmm. Even you can think of the capital of Chile, Santiago. They use that imagery because it's a way of associating themselves with military might and victory against non-Christian people. So that part of Spanish identity was really important to them, kind of historically. Mm. And I think it's also connected to the prestige of his relics. And there weren't very many apostolic relics in Europe. And so it was hugely prestigious to have them. I'm trying to think, I'm worried that I will get this wrong, but I feel like you have apostles' relics in Rome, Mm -hmm. you have St. Mark in Venice, and St. James in Compostela. And I'm trying to think... There's one in India, isn't there? I always get surprised by this one. It's Thomas, St. Thomas. But I think, I don't know where the rest of the relics are, but these are intact relics. So it's a whole body, which mm-hmm. is different from, I have a fingernail of this saint, I have the head <laughs> of that saint. This is an intact corpus, which is also more prestigious. So you have an apostle, and you have the whole apostle, and you have this continent-wide famous pilgrimage site. So I think all of those things made him seem like the best person to represent Spanish history, but also the contemporary moment of Spanish power. You've talked a lot about this representation of Santiago Matamoros or in the Americas. I still remember being surprised when I encountered Mata Indios, but that manifestation Mm -hmm. emerged as well. I think contemporary Mm -hmm. pilgrims to Santiago de Compostela find the Matamoros representation to be 
cringeworthy and historically mm-hmm. unfortunate and mm-hmm. fortunately for them there are these dual faces of Santiago in addition to Matamoros mm-hmm. you have Santiago Peregrino the the pilgrim and of course contemporary pilgrims like that one much more and it is featured mm-hmm. more prominently you haven't mentioned that representation was it not as commonplace in the 12th and 13th century this more sort of peaceful traveler or how does that fit in well certainly the pilgrim Santiago becomes important precisely as you say in the context of the Camino itself of the pilgrims travel across northern Spain to Compostela. So he's always worth, you know, you see promotion of that image along the route in a different way from what you see at other parts of Castile, where he's might be more likely to be represented as Matamoros. I don't know. Be interesting to do some, even if it was very preliminary study and see with the surviving images, and by image I mean painting and sculpture of St. James, how many represent him as pilgrim, how many as Matamoros. Although sometimes you get these weird hybrids where he's in his pilgrim guard with the scallop shell on a horse <laughs> with the sword. But I think in the 16th and 17th century, we have a lot of Matamoros images. And I think that's because of the kind of military context of Europe and the Americas during that moment. Certainly, some of the really important painters, of course, if they're painting the apostles, they are always going to represent him as a pilgrim. So that representation is certainly present and people are aware of it. But it doesn't seem to have been the powerful one in the political imagination when the debate comes up. So that's why that imagery kind of fell out of my study, because it just didn't show up very much in the (laughs) sources that I was reading. We'll wrap up with this. This book that you wrote on on James and Teresa came out about a decade ago, and I, I just discovered it. I'm embarrassed, but I'm very glad I found it. Your most recent work, published this past February, is Black Saints in Early Modern Global Catholicism. And I was just reading a description of it this morning and, of course, struck by the timing. It's the 21st consecutive day of protests where I live in Portland today associated Mm -hmm. with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I make no claim to being a religious or Catholic scholar. I read books Mm -hmm. associated with the Camino primarily. But certainly it's, it's hard not to notice that it seems like a lot of Catholic Christian history in the mainstream is is relatively whitewashed. I don't Mm -hmm. see discussions of race popping up very often. So I wonder if, Mm -hmm. you know, you could give the 10,000 foot view of what you've been learning about and what you've discovered about the representation and the role of Black saints in that early modern global Catholic context. Yes. So I think you're absolutely right about the Black Catholic history of being, as having been disappeared, really. And even today, we see a lot of discussion, important discussion, about the Church, and especially the Jesuit order in particular, and their role as enslavers. And so they were, they not just owned slaves, but they actively participated in the slave trade in the 16th and 17th centuries, sort of globally, not just in the United States. So when we see the discussions of the Catholic Church, that's usually what comes up. And there's a lot less discussion of Black holy people, both African-American, and I think there were five, maybe, currently African-American holy people who are, if you forgive me for putting it this way, in the pipeline for beatification and canonization. Mm -hmm. So the fact that there was and is an active and vibrant Black diasporic Catholicism is something that I think we need to talk about a lot more in the United States. A lot of that presence in the Catholic Church actually dates back to the period that I cover in my book, where we have a really powerful entrance of a very small cluster, four or five Black saints, into the Catholic liturgical calendar and devotion at the end of the 16th century. And that the timing of that is not a coincidence, because this is exactly the same time that the transatlantic slave trade is really taking off, and there's a lot of missionary activity in West and Central Africa. And of course, that had been going on for a long time, but the Catholic Church starts seeing Black saints as a way of reaching out to newly baptized, almost all enslaved 
Africans as it's kind of a bridge to bringing them into the Catholic Church. So the history of Black Saints is very complicated, but they can never be disentangled from the transatlantic slave trade. And of course, one of the things that people in the United States don't know, and there's there's no reason necessarily why they should know this, but we talk a lot about and think a lot about North American slavery. People might know that there were huge numbers of enslaved people taken to South America, particularly Brazil, which had the, mm-hmm. saw the highest number of enslaved people brought anywhere. But there were also lots of West and Central African enslaved people brought to Portugal and Spain and lived as enslaved and free people throughout the early modern period, well into the 18th century. In any event, the spread of devotion to these to the Black Saints that I study in my book are intertwined with this kind of larger history of kind of European collision into West and Central Africa and their involvement in the slave trade. I don't want to just translate that in the most cynical way possible. So I'm going Mm -hmm. to repeat what I think I heard to you and Mm -hmm. please tell me if it's fair. It sounds like what you're saying is that the church moved forward a handful of black saints as a marketing tool to reach out to (laughs) newly enslaved Africans. I would say yes and no. In the same way that, you know, if we think about what I said about the Archbishop of Compostela and the kind of multiple motivations that people had. The Pope was thinking about a global Catholic church, a series of different levels, and two of the Black Saints that I study, three actually, one of them, I sometimes will say four or five, and I kind of always put one of the saints off to the side because there's a lot less evidence for Mm -hmm. him. I mean, I know there was devotion to him, but I just know a lot less about it. Mm -hmm. And he was an early Christian Egyptian saint, but Ethiopian, named Moses. He was one of the Desert Fathers. In any event, they were Ethiopian saints. And so the papacy gets really interested in these Ethiopian saints in the 16th century, and they're engaged in a series of diplomatic and missionary interaction with the Christian kingdom of Ethiopia. And so what's happening in terms of Ethiopia is very different from what's happening in West Central Africa. Mm -hmm. So it's complicated, but yes, I think it is. Well, a marketing tool suggests that that the people that are being marketed to can buy or not buy. There's no (laughs) buy-in, right? I guess the most generous possible interpretation of that is that the church wanted to help enslaved Africans see themselves in the Catholic Church Mm -hmm. in ways that might be powerful. And I think, for me, one of the most important parts of the story is less the marketing angle, right? You have to talk about that because that's what gets the whole thing going. But the ways in which Black Catholics themselves baptized both enslaved and free people often took in devotion to Black saints and prayed to them, had them be their patron saints, named their children after them, commissioning sacred images to them. So we can also think, I think it's really important to think about Black saints as being deeply tied to a Black Catholic experience. And then there were a number, and we don't know how many, maybe even a long number of Black men and women, in particularly in Latin America, but also in North America, who were recognized as maybe being saints. We call that dying in the odor of sanctity, which means (laughs) everybody thinks you're really holy, and maybe you're a saint, and maybe not, and maybe we'll try to make you a saint, or maybe we'll forget about you. But there were lots of Africans, enslaved and free, who died in the odor of sanctity in the Americas. So they themselves were, you know, we need to think about a Black Catholic world and experience and legacy, that was really important. And it's still really important. So I'm in Baltimore, right, which Mm -hmm. is the most important archdiocese in the United States. And we think a lot about one of our local holy women is one of the ones in the pipeline, because she founded she founded an order for black women in the city of Baltimore, which still exists. She lived in the kind of early mid 19th century, if she ends up being canonized. So that is a legacy that still exists today. 
there's a vibrant black Catholic community here and other cities in the United States. And we are going to be seeing more and more black saints from the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries being canonized in the next couple of decades. And this is a tremendously important thing when we think about the church as a global Right. Everybody mm-hmm. knows that the fastest growing place for the Catholic Church is Africa. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have a church that is going to be less and less white and Italian as we go forward in time. Well, thanks for making that detour with me. It wasn't in the plan, but I, I definitely wanted to hear your thoughts on that subject. Yeah, you know, it was so funny because somebody referred to my book, this new book, Black Saints, just recently as quote, timely. I thought, <laughs> I, I'm an early modern Europeanist. It never occurred to me that anything I would ever write would be timely, especially since I started the book 10 years ago. And it's so it's so interesting to have it come out right at this moment. It's pretty surreal, actually. Well, I look forward to checking that one out as well. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for talking with me about, about Santiago, about Teresa, about everything else. I really appreciate you making the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I'll wrap up today with a slightly more extended discussion than I typically offer here. Aaron's remarks raised a couple of issues that I wanted to dig deeper into, and I'll share some thoughts on each. First, Aaron mentioned a black Baltimore woman who is now under consideration for sainthood. That woman is Mother Mary Lang, who was born in Santiago de Cuba in 1784, before moving to the U.S. in the early 1800s, eventually settling in Baltimore which was already known for its substantial free black population. Mother Lang founded a school for black children in her home. Then she co-founded the Oblate Sisters of Providence, the first religious order for women of African descent in the U.S., and followed that up by co-founding St. Francis Academy, which still operates today. Later, in a story that reminds one a bit of San Roche, she stepped forward to care for the ill when a cholera epidemic swept through the city. In December 2019, the Baltimore Archdiocese visited the Vatican, and the Archbishop relayed to WMAR, quote, I'm happy to say her cause is moving along. The position paper on her life of heroic virtue is nearly complete, and I think we should be all praying very hard that Mother Mary Lang's cause will advance, and that one day she will be canonized a saint. As things stand, it seems like the make-or-break issue may be the two documented miracles required for statehood. But stay tuned. There will likely be further movement on this over the next few years. The second issue that I wanted to discuss is, uh, well, it's, it's thornier. I mentioned in the conversation with Aaron that we were recording it on something like day 20 of Black Lives Matter-affiliated protests in my hometown, Portland, Oregon. Well, as I record this, we're now on the 38th straight day of protests in Portland. Meanwhile, in Aaron's home of Baltimore, last night saw a statue of Christopher Columbus torn down and tossed into the harbor. We've seen statues coming down all across the USA, centering first on Confederate Army figures and then expanding outward. The U.S. is not alone in this reckoning, though. In Belgium, for example, statues of King Leopold II have been removed. This movement combined with my discussion with Aaron, brought me back to 2004, when the Archbishopric in Santiago de Compostela discussed removing the statue of Santiago Matamoros made by José Gambino, which is located in the cathedral's left transept. As is common with Matamoros statues, it features a triumphant Santiago, sword raised, his white horse rising back in high dudgeon as a group of Moors writhe and die beneath its hooves. An Irish Times article offers one take on the thinking at the time, quote, An announcement in 2004 by church authorities that the statue was to be removed, in case it offended Muslims, was met with skepticism that the decision had more to do with fears of provoking the Arab world following the killings in March of that year of 191 commuters by Islamic terrorists in the Madrid train bombings. It can be challenging, of course, to recall the sentiments that flourished in popular media and public discourse in those years, linking the 9-11 attacks in the USA in 2001 
and the 11 March train bombings in Madrid in 2004, but discussions of Islamic terrorism were ubiquitous. At the same time, though, there was a steadying reminder from many political and religious leaders that terrorists, not Muslims, were the enemy, and that we needed to refrain from dangerous and polarizing stereotypes. It's within that context that the Irish Times quote should be read. The statue could be seen as antagonistic, for sure, and that was undoubtedly part of the discussion. But, and I think this is key, it certainly had to be seen as well as retrograde and counterproductive. That said, the decision, as noted above, was met with outrage, and church authorities quickly walked it back. Instead, they've subsequently found a middle ground. If you visit the transept today, you'll often see flowers piled high beneath the horse, covering up most of the bodies. It varies by day and probably by hour. There have been times when I could only make out the head pushing up against the horse's chest, and others when much of the suffering was exposed. A comment in the Camino Forum around the time captured the prevailing sentiment. A pilgrim wrote that, quote, I don't believe history should ever beg forgiveness for its past, nor should succeeding generations attempt to shroud those portions of it that may offend the shifting sensibilities of the day. While I can't recall exactly where I stood at the time, I think I probably would have leaned in that direction as well. That appeal to tradition and historic authenticity carries weight. It feels, on its face, inherently valid. As I've listened to the calls to remove Confederate statues and iconography in the USA over the last handful of years, though, it has also pushed my thinking on Matamoros. Confederate statues in the USA weren't built in the immediate aftermath of our Civil War. Rather, they emerged primarily between the 1890s and 1950s, part of a deliberate movement to glorify the leaders and cause of the Confederacy. And, also important, it wasn't even glorifying the actual Confederate objectives, but rather a revisionist, even mythic cause, one that simply isn't substantiated by the historical record. And it emerged intentionally, and it emerged intentionally as a reassertion of an oppressive, racist system of rule. So, while one might claim that we should keep statues to preserve history as it was, it's important to recognize that statues often tell a mythic or manipulated interpretation of history in service to the cause of those in power at a particular time. It's not history as it was, it's history as those in power wish it were. And, of course, we know that Santiago Matamoros, too, is a mythic reimagining of history, that the Battle of Clavijo didn't happen, and that the story was powerful, it resonated, and it could mobilize a people to come together in common cause in service to the leader's goals. So that's part of it. That said, there's no denying that, whatever the factual deficits of the Matamoros origin story, it became history. It was real once it existed, and it influenced real men and women. It spurred real events. It has been a real presence for centuries and centuries now. And that's legit. At the same time as I've been tracking the news, though, I've been reading a lot of seminal texts on pilgrimage studies, most notably Victor Turner, who is kind of the Plato of the field, everyone footnotes to him. And Turner writes about how Catholic Spain, unlike iconoclastic Islam, used icons and images as mobilizing points. However, he adds, those icons and images change over time, it's altogether common for an image to be featured in the religious spotlight for decades or centuries, and then to later be rejected completely. If you've ever visited any of the museums attached to churches along the way, you've seen a wealth of religious art that once featured prominently in the sacred center before ultimately being removed for all kinds of reasons. Saints fall out of fashion, artistic styles shift, new needs manifest. Indeed, the fear of Santiago falling out of fashion was so great among his advocates in the 17th century that they would brook no concession, yield no ground, lest his star diminish completely. Because that's what happened. Church leadership thought both in a sacred way and also a bluntly utilitarian one. And that leads me to this. 
What exactly is the use of Santiago Matamoros today? What message does it promote that is beneficial? Especially when you already have a universally accepted alternative, Santiago Peregrino, why cling to this historical anachronism? It's not about destroying statues or erasing history. I wouldn't want the statues destroyed. I hope they're preserved. I hope they're accessible. I hope they're contextualized. To me, it ultimately comes down to this. Why give pride of place to an image that runs counter to the values that the institution and the pilgrimage ideally represent today? The Cathedral in Santiago is the center of this sacred historic place. The transept, along with the adjacent relics, are the center of that center. Why keep this particular representation there? Look, I'm not Spanish and I'm not Catholic. I have no skin in this game. And as I've said, I've seen this issue from different sides over the years. I don't begrudge anyone who favors the status quo. I know that these days we have to take a side and then detest the other. I'm not doing that. But I wanted to share how my thinking has evolved over the years. I love the widespread devotion to preservation that exists today. We would be collectively much poorer if we didn't safeguard and care for the infinitely varied works of human creativity and intelligence over the millennia. But a hyper-dedication to tradition and status quo is, in its own way, anti-historical. We deny ourselves a measure of agency, an agency that was well exercised by preceding ages and generations, to reshape symbols to better align with and promote the most salient values of the current age. And in so doing, we risk missing opportunities to do better. That's all for this TED Talk. Thanks again to Erin Rowe. You can find her books, Saint and Nation, as well as Black Saints in Early Modern Global Catholicism in online bookstores. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at DaveWhitson.com. Thank you as always for listening. Nobody asked me.